Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology along with the new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulton, and today we'll be talking about plant immunity and how it can be engineered, and how we can make plants that are more responsive and more receptive to fighting their own battles to have better protection for crops. And we go today to Bloomington, Indiana, to talk to Matt Helm. Uh, Matt is a graduate student who's working on this project. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. You know, this is really great. It's a very interesting story that I think gives us an interesting um, inroads into how we might be able to come up with new mechanisms to fortify plants against pathogens. And could you start out by telling us a little bit about the plant immune system, at least as it applies to, you know, say the project that you're working on? How does the plant sense and respond to pathogen threats? Yeah, of course. Uh, so there's essentially uh, two layers of the uh, plant immune system. Uh, the first layer involves what are called um, pathogen recognition receptors. And so these are, you know, uh, proteins that are localized typically to the plasma membrane, and they uh, detect what are called um, PAMPs from the certain pathogen. Uh, most cases, it's like a bacterial pathogen or, or fungi. And these PAMPs are uh, pathogen-associated molecular patterns, and these are kind of protein signatures on the, for example, bacterium, and they interact with the plant pathogen recognition receptors, and upon this interaction, or an interaction uh, the PRRs are subsequently activated and then deploy, you know, through signaling cascades um, an active disease resistance response. And so really that's kind of like the first layer of um, plant immunity, the first line of defense. And so through pathogen evolution, there's been a selection pressure for pathogens to evolve uh, an evasion recognition mechanism. That way they're not recognized by this first layer of the plant immune response. 
And in doing so, uh, pathogens have basically evolved the ability to secrete specialized proteins um, inside the plant cell. Uh, and these specialized proteins, called effector proteins, um, basically secrete into the plant cell, like I said, and they target specific components of the plant immune response pathway. And by targeting these specific components, they can actually deactivate that first layer of the immune response. So it's the pathogen's ability to basically suppress that first layer of the immune response, thereby promoting pathogen virulence on the host. Um, Again, in this evolutionary arms race, the plant has actually evolved the ability to detect uh, such effector proteins. And so these, like I said, the effector proteins are secreted inside the plant cell cytoplasm um, where they interact with specific components of the plant immune response system. The plant has actually evolved the ability or has evolved what are called resistance proteins or R proteins. And these proteins detect effector proteins um, typically indirectly or directly. Um, And... There's only a handful of cases, really, that I'm aware of where there's a direct interaction between a resistance protein and a pathogen effector protein. Uh, most of the time, this um, recognition between resistance proteins and pathogen effectors occurs uh, often in, like indirectly. So where the um, resistance protein indirectly detects the presence of pathogen effector through an intermediate host protein, like a uh, what we call the uh, kind of the guardy or the guard of the R protein, right? So it's some other cellular protein that interacts with resistance protein, and that protein itself is the target of the effector. Okay, um, let, let, let's, let's do this real quick, because yeah. I think we're getting really in the weeds of this, and I want to make sure that people who listen are not getting too lost, because plant immunity is, a, is, is complicated, and I think you've really just spelled that out very beautifully for us. So let's make an analogy. Let's say that you have um, these uh, proteins that are receptor proteins that are on the outside of the cell, and these receptor proteins... Uh, think of them as kind of the lock on a door. And yeah. now you have uh, an invader, okay, you have a pathogen or some sort of organism that wants to harass the plant, or it has a, on its membrane a protein signature that we can think of as the key, right? So that this interacts yeah. with, the, with the lock on the plant cell, right? In order to begin, exactly. yep. all right, so in order to begin that process of, uh, um, of of in, what would you say virulence or in infectivity or what's the word? Yeah, virulence, infectivity. Yeah. Okay, so that establishes it, kind of shakes hands with the cell and begins this process. They have mechanisms to respond to that and create um, either molecules or defense strategies. That what do they do? That they limit the if. So you're talking about the effector, uh, which is the thing that comes from the bacterium, right? The uh, mm-hmm. So the plant has a response that's mm-hmm. on the other side of the door. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, that uh, that when you know when the when the bacterium comes a knocking, the back the plant mobilizes proteins to. Uh, so you're talking about direct and indirect uh, mechanisms of resistance. Can you give me an analogy of how that would fit into our discussion of like the lock and key mechanism here? Uh, yeah, well, we kind of, in our, in the NS lab, we have our own little, 
I guess, recognition, at least the indirect recognition part, um, we think of as essentially a mousetrap. The mousetrap itself does not directly interact with or detect a mouse, for example. Rather, uh, it detects it through a bait, the cheese, for example. And so, in this analogy, the mouse is the effector protein. And when the mouse nibbles on the cheese, and the cheese is the intermediate uh, protein, uh, it activates the trap, the resistance protein. Thus, the resistance protein indirectly detects uh, the presence of the mouse. And so there's been a variety of, I guess, different models of indirect recognition by resistance proteins of effectors. But I think a mousetrap is, the, I think, the most appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, so, or, but as opposed to a cat, right? Yeah, as a cat or uh, another one I've heard is uh, a fisherman casting his line into the lake and it's the fish nibbles on the bait and it activates the fisherman type of analogy. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I like the analogies better, especially in this particular area, because uh, so much of our audience is a, uh, you know, really interested in science and we bury them in the, in the minutia between two nerds talking about plant immunity. It's, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if, so just to go back to this then, so you have a, basically a bacterial system or bacterium or some sort of pathogen that handshakes with the cell, secretes some, has some sort of, um, uh, now, is the bacterial effector entering the cell, or how is that? Explain how the mouse gets yeah. into the house. Yeah, so essentially, the bacterium um, has a big needle-like structure uh, called the a fancy term called the type three secretion system. And so, basically, uh, for all intents and purposes, it pokes uh, a hole inside the plant cell, and this needle structure is, goes right into the plant cell cytoplasm. And these effector proteins travel through the type 3 secretion system into the uh, plant cell cytoplasm. And that's essentially how they uh, get inside the plant cell. Yeah, and this, we should mention, what is the main pathogen that you're working with? Uh, So our lab um, historically has worked with Pseudomonas uh, syringi. But uh, my specific project, I'm working with uh, viruses. So a little bit different than bacteria and a little bit different from what my other lab mates uh, actually work on. So I'm a little bit of the outcast. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, you know, back to the fisherman analogy, the outcast, right? Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but you're talking about um, you know, but Pseudomonas syringi. Syringi was the one that I, I called it syringi on purpose because it actually does this injection thing. And um, and so this is where this idea of a type 3 secretion system and this idea of delivering uh, proteins that now, uh, you know, deliver opening the, opening the door, shaking hands with the plant, lock and key, uh, introducing the mouse, which then goes to the cheese, which then gets whacked by the mousetrap. That's kind of the model we're looking at now, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so if we, and it took us a while to get to that, but that's a really important first step in order for us to understand what your lab is doing and why it's important and why it's so cool. So let's step off from there. So what are some of the things that, using that framework and that analogy, that uh, your laboratory has been working with? Yeah, so basically we've, in the, in the field of plant pathology, there's really a push to 
engineer durable, um, long-lasting resistance to certain pathogens. One way to do that is to transfer resistance genes between um, plants, essentially. Uh, For example, transferring resistance genes from uh, peppers to tomatoes. In, or introducing resistance genes from uh, the wild ancestors of the now domesticated crop plant. And, and actually, that's been a fairly effective strategy for engineering resistance to plant pathogens. There's, there's two main limitations using that strategy of transferring resistance between plant species. One being that uh, the resistance genes uh, um, are not always available within a germplasm collection. Basically, that's saying that you already need to identify a resistance gene that has a certain resistance to a pathogen that you would want. And so uh, a second strategy uh, is really modifying the R gene, the, the resistance gene. And by doing that, you can essentially generate a whole uh, bunch of mutants of R genes and then select which R genes you want that gives you a really expanded uh, recognition specificity. And so um, that strategy is, I think, one of the newer strategies that's been published within the last few years by various labs. Um, But that strategy is limited in the observation that there needs to be a direct interaction between a resistance protein and an effector protein. And like I said before, it's there's only a handful of cases where that's been the observation. Yeah. And so given these uh, limitations on the current strategies, our lab really devised a novel way to potentially engineer resistance um, to plant pathogens. And this observation was, going back to our mouse model, basically analogy is that Instead of modifying the trap, right, instead of modifying it to detect different types of uh, mice, for example, or different rodents, we hypothesized that it would be possible to capture different types of rodents by modifying the bait rather than a trap itself. So going back to more of the scientific analogy, we thought it would be possible to modify the um, effector-targeted Host protein rather than the resistance protein. And let's let's just um, let me jump backwards a bit because it's really important that that we uh, really establish for listeners, you know, we get, that we kind of de-jargonize this a little bit. So going mm-hmm. backwards. So when you're talking about immunity inside the plant, how do you get that? Uh, so you, a good example would be um, you mentioned toma- uh, tomato and pepper. And we right. look back into, I think it was episode number uh, 17, maybe, on this podcast, where we there, where the gene from pepper, called BS2, confers resistance mm-hmm. in peppers to a variety of different pathogens. And the BS2 gene uh, can be uh, spliced out of pepper, can be basically cut out of the pepper genome and placed into tomato. And it turns out that it actually does give resistance to the tomato to um, bacterial diseases, which is really cool. So you're able to actually yeah, yeah. mobilize that one gene. The alternative would be, um, in, but since tomatoes and peppers are not interfertile, you have to do it that way. But in something like potato, 
where uh, the disease resistance for something like Phytophthora and Festans, like the one that causes late blight, that there are resistance genes in wild populations that do not exist in the cultivated potato. So you have to breed those in, which takes forever, and, and it sometimes isn't even possible. No. So that's a good example of how you would be changing a different trap for a potential different invader. You'd be setting basically different traps for different invaders that might come a knocking on your on your on your plant cell. Now what you guys are doing, instead of changing the trap, you're changing the bait. So making one big giant mouse trap, one big pathogen trap that now just dangling a bunch of different baits out there that now can take care of whoever's coming to cause problems, right? Is that where we're going? Yes, exactly. So it's, I guess we're not so much as dangling multiple baits, but rather just making small modifications to the, I guess, the um, the cheese itself. But uh, evidence in our lab suggests that we can, by modifying the cheese, we can engineer resistance to not just different isolates of the same pathogen, but actually completely different species of pathogens. So um, we can engineer resistance to a bacterial pathogen, a fungi, or, or a virus. Um, so it's actually, I think, a really powerful technique. And is that because that no matter what your, your pathogen is, whether it's fungal, bacterial, or viral, there's some shared suite of responses downstream in certain uh, responses to pathogens? Um, yeah, so there's overlap between uh, plant cell signaling cascades for sure. But I think what makes this a really powerful technique is that when, so uh, pathogens, most of the uh, defined pathogens, fungi, viruses, uh, bacteria, uh, oomycetes, they all secrete um, effector proteins. And what we find or we have evidence for is that for uh, at least bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens that I'm working with, these effector proteins uh, interact uh, directly with the um, the protein that's um, essentially interacting with the resistance protein. And as long as that interaction occurs between the effector protein and the um, the protein that guards the resistance protein, right, um, it triggers activation of this uh, resistance protein and thus activates the downstream signaling pathways within the cell. So as long as that interaction occurs, we uh, see some form of resistance to that pathogen. Yeah, so we'll, we'll pick up there when we come back on the other side of the, of the break here. But um, as I, I see exactly where we need to go here. So we'll take a short break. We're talking to Matt Helm from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, where I just was recently. Um, and um, we'll come back and uh, we'll talk about how these mechanisms overlap and then how their laboratory has gone to essentially create a wider library of different um, baits that now can be used to tr- to uh, trigger this system, this defense system, in response to a variety of different pathogens. We'll be back in just a moment with the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. 
as always, we're excited to deliver the exciting stories of how DNA-based technologies are providing new solutions for people all over the planet. We're learning more about who we are as a species, the life around us, and how we can produce better food for more people with sensitivity to this big stupid rock in space that sustains us. This podcast is funded 100% by Kevin Folta and comes to you free each week for your listening pleasure. We actively turn away advertisers that could defray the costs of this enterprise because that would simply reinforce the beliefs of the whistleblowing merchants of doubt that believe education is simply a tentacle of corporate conspiracy. You can help by writing a review on iTunes, tell your friends, write a review on a blog, or leave some positive thoughts on the BuzzFeed article about me, Fern Blazer. Most of all, share the beautiful stories of science that you hear each week. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on Talking Biotech Podcast, where we're talking to Matt Helm from Indiana University, and we're talking about um, plant immunity and ways that you can engineer and tweak plant immunity to maybe be able to offer a wider protection for crops uh, in response to a series of different pathogens. And Matt, we should mention, um, tell us about the laboratory you work in, uh, who your advisor is, and what are the major goals of the lab. Yeah, so I guess I'm a part of the lab of Dr. Roger Innes um, at IU, and we really study the uh, kind of molecular and cellular mechanisms of uh, plant disease resistance, and there's a variety of projects in our lab that try focusing on this, and so one project in particular is my project the um, where we're modifying the plant immune system in such a way that it'll detect multiple pathogens, and potentially... Uh, making durable disease resistance or engineering durable disease resistance to pathogens. Um, Another project looks at basically uh, what type of proteins the plant resistance proteins interact with and characterizing that specific signaling pathway. Uh, Another project focuses on um, what are called basically exosomes um, and these are Um, specialized little vesicles that are secreted uh, out of the plant cell during a during an immune response which target um, pathogens and so that's a really cool project that we actually just published on in plant physiology and so if you're really interested in that you should um, check out that paper in that uh, plant phys journal and another project that our grad students working on is looking at kind of the more of the cell biology of plant immune systems. So looking at how, looking at basically um, how specific proteins are moved within the plant cell during an immune response. And so there's a really a variety of flavors that we study in the Ennis lab uh, that is under the umbrella of, you know, molecular and cellular mechanisms of plant disease resistance. And so that's kind of just a general overview of um, essentially what our lab does. Okay, so then back to the main question at hand. We are talking about the players in this particular scenario, that we have a lock and key mechanism that happens at the membrane that 
really where the pathogen and the cell that's to be invaded, how they shake hands. And upon shaking hands, some sort of mobilized uh, factor is introduced into the cell where then the plant immune response starts to engage it. And we use the analogy of a locking key at the door, and then when the doors open a crack, a mouse runs in, goes in, and then a mouse trap is there. But the mouse trap doesn't kill the mouse. It's more that the cheese that's there attracts that mouse and then gets whacked by the trap. Within that kind of framework, how do you design a mouse trap and cheese, so this 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 mechanism to do the destruction and then the bait that's there? How do you design that or retweak it to um, not only catch a mouse, but maybe catch a rat or a, or a what's that thing called a nuvia or nutria nutria yeah. <laughs> or or a platypus or whatever the heck is coming in the door? How do you, how do you rearrange that? And what's what are the tricks that you guys used at the molecular level to do that? These specialized proteins that pathogens secrete into the plant cell, for all intents and purposes, they're enzymes. And these enzymes are actually secreted into the plant cell cytoplasm where they target a, um, the guard protein of the resistance protein. And so these enzymes, these proteases, uh, actually cleave and deactivate the, the protein that guards the resistance protein. And upon this cleavage event, right, um, this is what triggers the resistance protein. And this is what we've shown in Arabidopsis, and we've characterized this pathway fairly, or characterized this cleavage event where it actually cleaves this uh, host protein at and what happens when this cleavage event occurs. And so we've fairly well characterized that. And so this was a pretty significant discovery for our lab uh, since it really suggested that perhaps we can change the uh, recognition of the um, host protein so that it is kind of the a decoy. So that's kind of a, uh, a bait for multiple uh, enzymes secreted in the plant cell cytoplasm. And so we hypothesized that as long as this protein is being cleaved and being targeted by these pathogen enzymes, these pathogen proteases, then it will activate a resistance response. And so one way to test that is we simply modified a, the, the site in the effector-targeted host protein that interacts with uh, the pathogen enzyme, the protease. We um, modified that motif so that it would be kind of a decoy, a, a bait for other pathogen proteases. And what we've shown is that if you take a viral protease, for example, this viral protease will interact with this modified um, effector-targeted host protein, and upon this interaction, it cleaves uh, this host protein, and this cleavage event then activates a resistance uh, a resistance response to this viral pathogen. This was really significant because it showed that not only could we engineer resistance to different pathogens, but entirely different species of pathogens. So a bacterial pathogen, a viral pathogen, fungal pathogens, so um, Asian soybean rust, as well as uh, wheat stem rust, two devastating uh, fungal pathogens of soybean and wheat. 
Okay, so let's go backwards again. Really, really, really important. So when yeah. you're talking about the um, the prote these uh, effector proteins that are in some cases proteases. Proteases are a broad class of proteins whose job it is to di- digest protein, right? Protease, just yeah. like any enzyme. And some proteases are very specific that they cleave at specific amino acid sequences that they find in a protein. Other ones are a little more general. But what you find in the cases of plant immunity are um, very specific ones that, that are designed to have targets to actually uh, to actually take away the plant um, uh, immune response. And you have to remember that this is this evolution in action, right? That now bacteria and fungi and others are producing proteases to fight back against the mousetrap, to fight back against the mechanisms that the plant has in place in order to stop the bacterial or fungal infection. So you have this, um, and I guess fitting in our, our analogy, is you have a mouse that now has the ability to destroy the trap and yeah. and so uh, and, and and other mechanisms that support the trap and so now you're you're basically uh, the the mouse can destroy the trap now it can eat the cheese all day and infect the house you've come up with ways to defeat that mouse from destroying the trap I know this is this is and this is why I like the analogy because when we talk about this in terms of plant immunity, it gets really in the weeds. So oh yeah, yeah so, so yeah so 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 help me out with this here. If, using our analogy, yeah. talk about this idea of of how this idea of of, of the mutagenesis, so changing the the protein sequence. Talk about that inside the parlance of our analogy. Yeah, so. In the, in the form of our analogy, we're, we're, we're not changing the trap, we're just changing the bait. And so we're not changing the entirety of the bait. We're not swapping a piece of cheese for um, a piece of fish or, or bread or something. No, instead, that, that, that would be ridiculous. Yeah, that would be silly. <laughs> um, and we're, Instead, we're just changing a small, basically sliver of the cheese um, such that it's now more enticing for different types of rodents uh mice rats uh who knows gotcha yeah so so swiss cheese for the swiss mouse and maybe some cheddar for the wisconsin mouse right so i I see how this works so so you're changing a little bit of the signature of that makes doesn't change the cheese so much it just makes the cheese um more enticing to specific types of rodent aren't kangaroos rodents technically I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I think they're in Rodentia. But anyway, the, the idea is is that you could potentially have a bait that can reach across many different species and still be able to lure them to the trap. Exactly, now, yeah. And so you're talking about this as, um, and the, the word you used was molecular decoy. And how is that actually, so if we think about that cheese, what is it in real life? Um you know, so what is the what is the cheese in the parlance of the cell and in, in the context of the cell, and um, and and how do you go about changing it? Uh, okay, yeah. So I guess kind of going more a little bit scientifically, um, the uh, cheese don't do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Help us out here. Go, like, you know, give it give it to us in a real real layman's kind of description. Okay, yeah, so so the cheese itself is called um, a protein called PBS1. And 
it's basically a protein that is stuck to the plasma membrane of a plant cell. And what's interesting about this particular protein, or this, I guess, gene now, um, is that it's, it's, it's widely conserved among defense genes in flowering plant families. So you can find clear relatives of this gene, PBS1, in um, soybean, uh, wheat, barley, maize, sorghum, all of the widely domesticated crop plants. And this makes our, I guess, system particularly powerful because if this is, if this system is shown to work in in soybean, for example, it could potentially be transferable to other crop plants, um, such as wheat or or barley or maize. And so, I think that's a particularly powerful approach that our lab has really kind of um, expanded upon, or can really apply to other crop plants and not just a specific select few. Um, but uh, going back to the modification of PBS1, uh, essentially what we do is we introduce specific mutations within the PBS1 gene. And these mutations basically swap out amino acids. And so we can change uh, seven amino acids in PBS1 to amino acid sequences uh, that are recognized by these uh, pathogen proteases, these pathogen enzymes. And so it's really what we have found is that it's really this these seven amino acids that are kind of the key amino acids that are required in order to have PBS1 function as a decoy, as kind of a bait um, for these pathogen proteases. And so how do you determine that different sequence? Is it done randomly, or is that done just yeah. because of some sort of uh, predictive tool? In the in my case of viral protease, uh, most of these amino acids um, are kind of well characterized um, because these um, protease recognition amino acids are fairly well conserved among particular um, families of viruses. Another way is using kind of more detailed analysis, more bioinformatic analysis, uh, looking at, you know, uh, looking at the proteins that are secreted inside the plant cell and then further characterizing those. So are those proteins proteases? And if so, uh, are they digested? Or can they digest certain uh, substrates? And we can go into a little bit more detail down the road. But essentially, it's it's a lot of predictive software, and it's a lot of just looking at the current literature, really. <laughs> okay, so, so essentially, you know, if we really had to boil this down, it's basically like taking this entire system that's in plants, that's there to respond to pathogens, and has, and maybe another, you know, just using a different analogy, having different sensors that are out there to sense specific kinds of pathogens. And what you're doing is is you're kind of boggling that receptor a little bit so that it's receptive to a whole series of different pathogens that could potentially ignite that same defense response, right? Yeah. All right. Yep. So basically taking a whole bunch of pathogens and funneling it down so that they interact with this one protein and upon this interaction and cleavage of this uh, protein, PBS1, it'll activate a resistance response. Yeah. 
Are, are there any advantages to finding, say, sequences that either auto-cleave or that are cleaved by other um, types of plant responses like stress or, or uh, maybe non-pathogen, non-biotic um, events that could trigger some sort of a uh, plant response that could be beneficial? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, one of the main limitations, I guess, of this system is that you could have proteases um, from the plant cell itself be uh, target this uh, PBS1 decoy that could be a formal possibility. And so upon that, you would essentially get an autoactive resistance response, and that would be very bad news for the plant itself. And so it takes really careful design to introduce these uh, specific amino acid sequences. We, once we have a protease recognition sequence, it takes kind of careful tweaking and figuring out what is sufficient to really prevent autoactivation. Well, but, but a lot of listeners are probably thinking if, if your defense response was always on, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be a good thing? Because then, you know, whatever came along, you'd be immune to. Uh, their main defense response is actually to commit uh, plant cell death, plant su- plant cell suicide. Um, and so once a resistance response is activated, this plant cell will essentially um, kill itself and it'll uh, essentially induce cell death um, within its neighboring cells. And so this is kind of counterintuitive if you initially think about it and aren't familiar with plant uh, pathology or plant immunology. And the idea behind this is that if if the pathogen requires living cells for you know, extraction of nutrients and amino acids and other types of goodies, uh, if you essentially kill the plant cell, you're basically starving the pathogen of resources and nutrients that it needs to survive. And so it's sacrificing a handful of cells for essentially the betterment of the entire plant. Yeah, so igniting that entire system throughout the entire plant would probably be embryo-lethal, like you'd never even create a new plant that would be viable. Typically, what we see is that if you have auto-activation of a resistance response, there's definitely um, secondary effects, stunted growth, obviously plant death, and so it's, it's actually not advantageous to have a constitutionally active resistance response. Okay, so I think, you know, we covered a lot of a lot of area here, and I think, you know, if we just wanted to boil it down one last time, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, what your laboratory has been working on is a way of essentially taking a, 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 a plant immune response, which is very specific, and finding ways to make it more general by defining more... Uh, mechanisms to turn it on. So basically, uh, the 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 uh, a variety of different pathogens can excite a system, which is typically excited by a narrower range of pathogens, and uh, and that's kind of the whole idea. And and what a, what what are the major uh, advantages to this kind of approach versus other approaches in trying to get what you call durable plant immunity, meaning that it's something that um, will be less likely to be evolved around. These pathogen enzymes that are secreted in the plant cell, these are usually uh, required for pathogen virulence, for the pathogen's ability to essentially survive and, and wreak havoc on the host cell. Ideally, the pathogen would not, there's no incentive for the pathogen to basically get rid of these, these proteases, right? They're, they're essential. And so in our system, we're really taking we're taking advantage of that observation 
that these proteases are essential. And so we're tweaking the plant immune system such that it recognizes these highly uh, evolved and necessary proteins. And so it'd be really, I think, unlikely for a pathogen to evolve um, evolve the ability to discard this protease and evolve an, a, a new gene or new protease to overcome this type of resistance. And in the case of viral proteases or viruses that I work with, um, these proteases are actually absolutely required for translation of the virus uh, inside the plant cell, and they're required for replication. And so in viruses particularly, it's really, I think it's highly unlikely that this protease, uh, that this virus would uh, mutate the protease without compromising its own um, viral genome, its own um, ability to infect cells. And so I think this makes our system particularly durable as compared to other systems. No, really good. And, and I think this was really interesting because it gives us an idea of other ways that we can solve the problem of plant pathogens and uh, ways in which by engineering the plant in clever ways that really just accelerating the, the um, process of evolution and doing some things that evolution couldn't do, uh, we can help cause or help create durable resistance, which is great because it means fewer farm inputs. It also means more food security around the world. And that that's cool stuff. But let, let's uh, touch on one last thing about, about you and what you're up to. So you're a graduate student now. Um, and uh, when do you graduate? Uh, hopefully uh, two years time. Um, since I work in crop plants, they grow fairly slowly. <laughs> and I work in virus virus um pathogen assays and they take a few weeks but hopefully two years three years time yeah yeah better than breeding beavers that's another road uh, too yeah <laughs> I mean, just you know staying on theme you know the, the one i was trying to remember before was castoroides you know this thing uh, so this was castoroides was was like a giant beaver but it was a it was about the size of a bear and yeah. uh, you can even find its teeth, I guess, all over you know, eastern United States, that there's still a lot of evidence that it was here, like as recent as uh, 10,000 years ago or so, but Ice Age kind of thing. Uh, anyway, I digress. So what's next for you? What do you think is going to happen next? And what's your long-term outlook in uh, in science and a place for you there? Yeah, so uh, I've really been considering a variety of careers, um, going the uh, postdoc route, at some type of land grant university, um, also considering, you know, industry positions. Um, but I, I'm really considering uh, working for the Agriculture Research Service through the USDA branch. I think that's going to be personally one of the best fits for me. Um, and I've been in contact and networking with a variety of scientists from the uh, USDA and just gathering their input on what it's like to working for the USDA, the advantages of working for them and just the kind of the research environment, the work environment and different projects that they're uh, particularly involved with. Um, so once I graduate, I'll be looking position um, there. Um, definitely more emphasis on, I think, research. 
Okay. Yeah, just just always curious. I know we have a lot of students who are listeners, and I uh, get emails from them all the time asking about what do I do now, and uh, and it's yeah. good. Good. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, you guys are kind of jumping down a gigantic, uh, a, a dark corridor right now because there's a lot of great opportunities, but uh, you know, it's very difficult in academia right now. Um, industry is still doing pretty well, but we see a little bit of taper there. And who knows what's going to be happening with respect to government agencies and funding going forward under the next administration, where, you know, USDA, a lot of folks have, have told me they're really concerned, whereas I say the you know, the agricultural states are the ones that elected our next administration, and maybe you can lean on them for more support of agriculture. So Yeah, yeah. It, it remains to be seen how everything will play out, but it, uh, it sounds like you're really preparing yourself in the right way, and I appreciate you being a guest with us today. And and so if people did want to find you on social media, what's the best way to find you, um, either on Twitter or blog or something like that? Yeah, so I do have a Twitter. Um, my username is MattDHelm13. Um, and again, I, I really just tweet interesting science articles that uh, that's really particularly involved with uh, plant pathology, you know, genome editing, climate change, a variety of topics. So it's my way of really giving back to the science community of what I think is interesting or um, what I think is really worth reading. Yeah. Okay, that's really great. So thank you very much for joining us, Matt Helm, a graduate student in Roger Innes's lab at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.